something that we've returned to several times as a church. And in some ways, the first thing I want to say about the Psalms is a bit ironic, which is that the Psalms aren't really primarily meant to be preached, aren't meant to be taught. Um, They're meant to be prayed. They're meant to be taken up on our lips and returned to God as prayer. That's really what the Psalms are. They are 150, um, you can think of them as songs. Really what the vast majority of them are, though, is, is that they're songs addressed to God, they're prayers. And the use of the Psalms is really that we would take them up and make them, as we'll talk about in just a little bit, make them the, the language of our Hearts, And so there's a little bit of an irony always to preaching through the Psalms because that's not really what they're primarily for. So my deep hope for us as a church is not just during this series, but this is something that comes up even in discipleship course a good bit for us, is that we would really love for the Psalms to become the place that we corporately and individually return to again and again and again and find ourselves addressing God through the words of the Psalms. Because when we do that, they will begin to form us in a really unique way. As I head into this particular iteration of the Psalm series, I just can't help but think of um, uh, Pastor Tim Keller, pastor in New York City who just died recently. Um, Jalen often sort of jokes that he's the archbishop of our church because he probably gets mentioned more than anyone else. Huge influence in my life. But he died recently, and there's all of these... Um, what are they called? Like eulogies or, or um, I forget what you call them, like obituaries, right, that, that are being written of him in different publications. And one of the things that's most commonly mentioned about him is the fact that he spent really his entire life of faith just deeply steeped in the Psalms. He would read a few of the Psalms every single day and pray them back to God. And those formed him as much as anything had formed him sort of according to everyone, according to his wife, according to closest friends, according to people that he had mentored and all that stuff. It's like, man, if you knew Pastor Tim, it was, um, it, it was just so core to who he was that the Psalms just sort of flowed out of him. And I can't help but think that that is but a whisper of the primary reason why the Psalms should be something that we are steeped in, which is that Jesus himself the one that we are centered on, the one that we um, find our hope and salvation and model for living in and all of those things, that Jesus, time and again, in the moments particularly of his greatest uh, joys and his greatest sorrows, the, the moments where he was sort of at the, at the edge of human experience, we find again and again that it's the words of the Psalms that flow out of his mouth, right? Like Jesus himself said, like out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when Jesus, when you're in the worst kind of pain, when you're in the worst kind of anxiety, what's at the base of you comes out. (laughs) Now, for most of us, that can be a little bit of, you know, a little bit of an embarrassing thing of what comes out, right? Like what's at the base? We watch that Jesus in those moments, what he's drawing from most deeply in those moments are the words of the Psalms. Why? Because he had steeped himself. Right? That word steep, like, like, a, like tea um, that goes into water and slowly that tea begins to, begins to penetrate all of the cells and mo- molecules of that water to the extent that, that the water and the tea are, are one and the same. Right? We now call that cup tea. This is how Jesus was with the Psalms. He was so steeped in them, that what came out is like his heart 
and the, and the passion and the words and the truths of the Psalms were what came out of him. And if I had to make a primary argument why we're going through the Psalms, that would be it. Because Jesus himself was formed as much, speaking biblically, as much by the Psalms, really you could argue as by anything else. And what's really cool is that the New Testament writers uh, pick up on that, these early Christian missionaries and teachers and church leaders who wrote the, the sort of what we think of as the second half or that second part of the Bible as we know it, do the same thing where, this is often a trivia question that, that people get wrong, um, is like what Old Testament book is most often quoted in the New Testament and is by far without a close second, it's the Psalms. It's even the early church, the, the first followers of Jesus, picked up on this aspect of who Jesus was and said, man, we've, we've got to figure out how to incorporate the Psalms in, into the heart of who we are corporately and individually as people. There's just three things that I want to talk about today to, to give you a sense of the overall picture of the Psalms. When we approach the Psalms, there are, um, there are a couple things that we notice right away once we've sort of placed our arms around them. And I think they also get to how, how steeping ourselves in the Psalms will shape and form us as followers of Jesus. The first thing that the Psalms, uh, that you'll notice about the Psalms is that contrary to all of our expectations, most likely, the vast majority of the Psalms in terms of their different genres, right? Think of a songbook. Think of like the great American songbook. Maybe you've heard that before, is that there's sort of this collection, this canon of songs that we consider like, man, this, this is great American music. Within that, there's going to be all different sorts of genres. There's going to be the blues and R&B and country music and more recently pop and hip-hop, right? There's going to be all these different genres, and each of those genres brings something a little bit different to the table. The same is true of the Psalms. There's all these different kinds of genres. There's Psalms that are Psalms of rejoicing and praise. There's Psalms that are um, talking about being... Uh, being betrayed. There's psalms that, that sort of are more uh, teaching us things. There's psalms that are more kind of theological and, and talking about who God is. But the vast majority, genre-wise, of the psalms are these things called laments. And if you've been around Jacob's Well for long enough, you've, you've probably heard us say this in some ways, that when God's people open their mouths to sing, the type of song that's most often coming out of them is not happy, clappy, praise Jesus, everything's fine. It's actually lament. What lament is, is speaking of those different genres, even in the, in the musical story of our nation, the, the laments are, are the blues, are the everything's not okay. The world is not as it should be. You see, the first thing, if, if you're tracking along with me, the first thing that we notice about the Psalms is that they, they deal with reality as it really is. They ground us in actual reality. They don't displace us from us. I think that sometimes when we think about worship, we think about something that's meant to pull us out of life as it actually is and force us to put on something that's foreign to what we're actually feeling and experiencing in that moment. Right? And look, the, <laughs> the entire Christian journey, I'm not coming after anyone like but the reality is that many times when we come into a gathering like this in the church, particularly in the West, 
if we are someone that is hurting and in pain, if we are someone who has gone through tremendous grief and loss recently, if we are someone who feels like we've made a mess of our lives, sometimes coming into a gathering like this can be really difficult because by all appearance, everyone else is doing just fine. And then what's said from up here only confirms our suspicion that we might be the only one going through something. And what I can tell you is that the very songbook, the very hymnal of the people of God in the Bible would call us to a very different kind of reality. It would call us to reality as it really is. Which is that the prayers of God's people are full of of good, faith-filled, believing people saying things like, How long, O Lord? Saying things like, God, have you forgotten me? Saying things like, Oh God, have mercy on me because I am far from you. It's extraordinary that when we open this book and you start reading, and it can be startling. Right? Like if you do some sort of program, maybe some of you have done something like this, where, you, where you, know, uh, you read maybe a psalm a day or a couple of psalms a day, you start going through and you're like, okay, this, it, it gets a little bit emotionally taxing because it's contradicting not your reality, it's merely contradicting your expectations. But when you begin to say, no, this is actually reflecting where I'm at, then the psalms begin to do their work because it's saying, no, 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 you can't do the just put on a fake face with me. <laughs> the psalms are talking back to us. It's saying, we're going to go where you actually need to go. Rather than putting this Christianized, hyper-spiritual face on the actual struggles that you're going through. The Psalms, one writer puts it, require a watchful recognition of the trouble we are in. A watchful recognition of the trouble we are in. The Psalms slow us down. The Psalms, that same author goes on to say, the Psalms require a real change of pace. They slow us down, right? Many of us, if we pray, right? Like, if we pray, and I know that many of us struggle with consistency in that area and stuff, but think about the times when you do pray. A lot of times it's quick, it's primarily superficial, it's get through it, it's list off a bunch of things that I need, and then I'm done. The Psalms say, slow down. You've got to slow down. Because the Psalms actually want to engage what's, what's going on in here. One of the most beautiful things about the Lament Psalms is that so often they are less statement of request or fact, and there's a lot of questions in there. You get questions directed to God, like, how long, O Lord? You also get questions asked of oneself, like Psalm 42 uh, that, that uh, we'll cover in this series. Ask this series of questions. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so distressed? Why, why is what's within me so distressed? You hear how that's like a, it's like a good counselor, right? Or a good friend who doesn't ask you, how are you doing once? They ask it like four or five times until they get the real you. How you doing? Ever had someone do this for you? How you doing? I'm good. How you doing? Hey, good. How you doing? I'm fine. How you doing? How you doing? And it, and it can break something in us. That's what the laments are like a really good friend, a really good counselor that's going to ask us some questions 
to slow us down. Let's just hear a couple of these. This is Psalm 44. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's the end of the psalm. (laughs) That's where it lands. God, where are you? Listen to Psalm 13. First couple verses here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. God, I'm dying if you don't do something. My heart is breaking within me. You've got to show up. I wonder how many of us even know that we have permission to talk to God that way. Not just permission. Not just when it's really hard. Remember, the vast majority of the Psalms have this kind of tone to them. Not only do we have permission to do this, I think in a way, if I could be so bold, we're commanded to do this. If we have never spoken to God this way, I actually think that a couple things are true. One, there's almost surely something lacking in our actual relationship with God. Right? We have turned God into a superficial friend who can't handle what's actually going on with us, and we have not entrusted ourselves to him that he can return to us what we need in those moments. Right? Your closest friends, your most trusted confidants are people who know the rawest version of you. So if you have never actually offered this to God, then I commend you to do that and entrust this to him, and you might find contrary to expectation, paradoxically, that actually something grows in your relationship with him rather than that something is broken. Most of us might think, if I talk to God this way, ooh, he might get mad at me. He might say, oh, really? Watch what I'm going to do. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is, this is in the songbook of God's people. He wants this from us. He, he already knows. Look, you're not telling him something you don't know. You're just actually relating to him in a new way. And maybe you'll find that then you allow him to sort of draw near to you in a different kind of way than you've entrusted him to. The other thing that we do here, church, is that when we don't lean into lament, whether that's in our corporate gatherings, whether that's in uh, what we allow each other to do. By the way, (laughs) this is really helpful to me. There is a... The difference between complaining and lament like makes all the difference. Like, like that difference is cosmically significant. You know what complaining is? It's saying things to each other that we should be saying to God. So many of us spend our lives complaining And all that we're trying to do is sort of emotionally unload on someone who can probably just absorb that and not do much about it. What the Psalms say is, not that you can't ever complain, right? Like like the, the Bible approaches us as real people, 
But I wonder if this week, if as we complain, if we could develop this instinct, and I would pray that the Spirit would do this in you, to say, why am I not bringing this to God? Because God is actually the one who can both absorb it and then maybe do something about it. We might also find that when our complaint goes from horizontal to vertical, we see that complaint a little differently, right? Because now we're dealing with someone to whom we are actually accountable for what our hearts are saying. And so I wonder if one of the reasons why lament is so uh, prominent in the Psalms is because that's, that's a place where our hearts can be really ugly, where our hearts can be going through some stuff, and God says, come to the one who can actually transform your heart in that moment. That was an aside. The second thing that happens when we don't um, lament is that we send the wrong message to a hurting world, and we might send the wrong message to a brother or sister. Because when we leave out lament, we also leave out suffering and doubt and betrayal and mourning and grief and loss. We leave that out as a normative experience, as a normal experience of faith. We make people feel like, no, you can only show up and worship here if, if you've got everything together. When we leave out lament, we unknowingly leave out people who are going through it right now. Does that make sense? Listen to... Uh, this says it even more powerfully. This is Sung Chan Ra, um, who's someone that, that uh, our, our leaders ha have seen in, in different conferences and things. He's a powerful prophetic voice. And one of the things that he's most eager to do is return lament. Um, and this is particularly in response to all of the racial injustice in our nation. And I do feel like I'm a little bit, don't read it, I do feel a little bit hopeful that these last few years of all of the the uh, injustice that has gone on, all of the conversations of, around the, uh, the racial history of our nation, all of the conversations uh, politically and all of that stuff has, has worn away a little bit on the church's reticence to lament. I do feel like there's, there's a little bit of breaking in. You're watching more and more lament songs being written by the church. You're watching more and more churches uh, have that as their first instinct. That's one of the things we want to do here is when stuff gets hard and stuff happens nationally that, that has impact on us, we want our first instinct to be, look, we can go to God and lament. We don't have to solve this right away, but we also don't want to do nothing. We want to acknowledge it and deal with reality as it is. You see how that's doing what the Psalms do? This is what Sung Chin Ra says. He says, the American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized and the underlying narrative of suffering that requires lament is lost. But absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart forget. The absence of lament in the liturgy of the American church results in the loss of memory. We forget the necessity of lamenting over suffering and pain. And in so doing, we forget the reality of suffering and pain. Particularly as a multi-ethnic church, that is going to experience at various times, as various things happen, we will experience things inevitably differently. As a church that's coming from different places politically, we will experience certain things differently. The one thing that we have at our disposal as the people of God that can always unite us is we can always go to God with lament and say, I don't understand it all right now, but I know a brother or sister is hurting, so I will join them in lament to God. Lament has a unifying impact as well. Again, probably contrary to what we think. Well, we can't talk like that. 
right? And look, this is something that we continue to grow in. When we lean into this in our liturgy here at Jacob's Well, I know that some of you feel like, like, are we allowed to do this? Like, isn't church not supposed to be a bummer? Aren't we supposed to be happy? Why are we doing that lament thing again? And all we're doing is joining with centuries and centuries of God's people who, when they went to address God, included lament as an aspect of what it looks like to faithfully address God. The Psalms deal with reality as it is. The other thing that's very clear as we approach the Psalms as a whole, and this is why A.J. read Psalms 1 and 2 for us, is that those first two psalms act as an introduction to the rest of the thing, okay? I'll teach you a fancy word. The Psalter, not like Psalter, this is with a P.S. The Psalter is one way of talking about the entire book of Psalms, okay? So you can think of it as the book of Psalms, but every now and then I know I'm going to slip and say Psalter, and you might be wondering, why is he talking about salt. Um, That's what the Psalter is. So the Psalter is introduced by these first two Psalms. This is where I would love for you to have a physical Bible open in front of you, because I want to show you a couple of things about these two Psalms. So first of all, you'll notice that unlike many, many, many Psalms, These two psalms don't have headings, don't have superscriptions, as they're called. They're sort of linked together. Do you see that? I mean, it might be titled, The Way of the Righteous and the Wicked, The Reign of the Lords and the But like, look at Psalm 3, if you're looking at a physical Bible. It says, A Psalm of David when he fled from, look at Psalm 4, to the choir master. Right? Psalm 1 and 2 don't have that. Notice also that Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, and then has this line at the end about the way of the wicked will perish. Notice at the end of Psalm 2 that the kiss the son lest he be angry, you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly came up. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So there's even this sort of the beginning and end of Psalms 1 and 2 are together. Um, there's a couple other things that we could say, but those, those are kind of the big ones that link these two Psalms and seem to make them an introduction. Now, If you were listening closely, which you may or may not have been, no judgment, but as AJ was reading, when you go from Psalm 1 to Psalm 2, they're not, they don't sound like they're linked. They're two very different types of Psalms even, right? The first Psalm is very much dealing with this extended imagery of the the righteous one, the one who meditates on the law of God, is, uh, is like a tree planted by streams that grows, that has this health to it, whereas the wicked one is like chaff that is thrown away. It's, it's a wisdom psalm. That's the genre. We were talking about genres before. It's called a wisdom psalm. It's, it's very much talking about that there's a wise way to navigate the world. The second psalm is more about, it seems like God kind of verses the nations. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then this whole thing about God enthroning his son on the throne and then the son ruling and reigning over all things. And, and now what really matters is not so much whether you meditate on the law of God, but the extent to which you are submitting to the reign and rule of God. Here's how these two are linked. I actually find this really fascinating. Is... It's telling us that there's a way of living in the world, Psalm 1, and the way of living in the world is in light, Psalm 2, 
of the true story of the world. That's how I'd put it. That Psalm 1 says you've got you've to meditate on God. You've got to meditate on his instruction. You've got to meditate on his ways. And then Psalm 2 is basically telling us part of what you're meditating on is that there's a story that your life is caught up in. There's a bigger story than just your own little narrative. And that big story is that everything has gone wrong in the world, and now God is setting it right by putting his son to reign and rule over it. That God is intervening in history. And so it's saying there's a right way to live, and it's living in light of that story. You see that? So the second thing that the Psalms do, if the first thing is that it, it approaches reality as it is, the second thing to do is, is it doesn't leave us there. It shows us how to navigate reality. In light of who God is, and in light of this story that he is the protagonist in, that he is the main character in. You see, most of what the Psalms are, and this is so obvious when you're reading through the Psalms that you could just easily miss it, is that the vast majority of Psalms are addressed to God. That's the important thing here, is that we would be people who find ourselves more regularly addressing God. Our whole vision as a church is that we would be known for being a church that breaks barriers to encounter Jesus together. Do you hear the end goal? That is encounter with Jesus. Encounter, relationship, interaction with him. And the Psalms show us how to do that. And it says, to the extent that we do that, and I love these two images in Psalm 1. Read Psalm 1 over and over again. I bet for some of you, Psalm 1 is just really precious because its imagery is so powerful. It says that one that does that, that actually meditates on God's word, that, that believes themselves to be part of, of this story that God did send his son and that the son did what only he could do in overcoming sin and death on the cross, rose victorious over it, and now is reigning and ruling over all things. The one who does that is like a tree. And a tree that grows. And a tree that's alive. And a tree that has nutrients coming into it. What I love about this image of a tree is that a tree doesn't always look like it's thriving. <laughs> Trees go through seasons, right? It's part of what the Northeast has going for it. We got those seasons, right? And what happens in the seasons, right? There's fall and winter. And in fall, it looks like a tree is coming apart. And in winter, it looks for all appearances like it's dead, that it'll never thrive again, and then spring comes. And this mysterious thing happens where life springs again and, and fruit comes again and blossoms again. The only way that that tree truly is coming apart, the only way that it truly is dead is if it loses connection with what gives it life, with the water that the stream is providing for it, with the soil that its roots are deeply in. And it says those are the things that we need to be connected to such that in seasons where it looks like we're coming apart, such in seasons where it looks to all appearances like faith might be dead in us, if we just stay connected, new life will come. But the important part are, are our roots still in? Are we still drawing water from God? You see, the Psalms provide language for us when we find that language is lacking, right? Have you ever been through a season where prayer feels impossible because you're like, what am I even going to say to God? 
The Psalms say, speak these words to God. Stay connected. Send your roots back into this soil. And then it says, on the opposing side of it, it says the wicked are like chaff. I don't know what chaff is. You probably don't know what chaff is. But I get the image, right? It's like, um, have, you ever, have you ever cut your lawn, uh, if you have a lawn? Have you ever cut your lawn when it was entirely too dry to cut it? And then like the shavings are like this sort of like thing that like gets all up in your eyes and the dust is kind of coming at you even as you're mowing. That's what I think of chaff as, surely it's not. Um, I know what chaff is, but we're not going to go into that. But that's a much more Jersey image for it is like that what blows back in your face when things are especially dry and what gets kind of just thrown up, right? There's no life in it. It kind of uh, gets all over you, right? You go inside and you're like, what, you, what is this stuff? It says that's what the wicked are like. Because here's what we're tempted to believe. If we believe ourselves to be living in a different story, if we think that the story of our lives is the American dream, if we think the story of our lives is Western prosperity, then we can look around and say, who are the trees? Who's winning? Who's thriving? But if we believe ourselves to be in a story where faithfulness to Jesus is what matters most, where connectedness to Jesus even matters more than our faithfulness to Jesus, because it's his faithfulness primarily, then we will see with new eyes and see all of that other stuff that we tend to judge thriving and success by, it's just, it's just dust in our eyes. It, it, it's stuff we've got to get off of us, because it's dry and dead. And it's not, not even doing good for those who appear to be thriving under it, right? This is why someone this week was telling me, like, I always think of one of the quirkiest things about you is your, like, obsession with, uh, with like, pop artist uh, documentaries. In fact, Ryan Fisher very recently recommended one. Ed Sheeran, who it seems like is doing great, which I'm really happy for Ed. But most of them aren't. Most of them aren't, y'all. Like, most of them are not thriving. And there's something helpful about watching going, there's a tree. It's blooming and blossoming. And then you go behind the scenes and you re-enter the story where a human being is not made for that stuff. A human being is made for a God who loves them, who created them, who wants to be connected with them. And you look and you look with new eyes and you say, oh yeah, it's chaff. It's helping us navigate that. It's giving words for that. It's reorienting us as we go through life. Because the biggest thing that the Psalms will do, along with that lament piece, the other primary genre of the Psalms are praise, right? They're reminding us of the truth of who God is. And that's what we need. Along with expressing what's really going on with us, we need to address God and then remember the one that we are addressing. And there are two things that the Psalms are at pains to remind us God is and God does. One is that he is the God of creation. He is the God who created all things. He is the God who with a word made galaxies come into existence. He is the God, there's these beautiful uh, Psalms, a lot of them in, in the 90s, not the 1990s, the 90s in the Psalms, Psalm, Psalm uh, 90 through 99. Um, <laughs> there's these great Psalms, um, see you were confused. Um, there's these great Psalms that talk about the voice of God. The voice of God thunders. When God speaks, it says things like, mountains melt. It's one of my favorite images in all the Psalms. The mountains melt at the word of the Lord. 
Where is it getting that from? It's getting that from the opening scene in the Bible where God speaks and stuff happens. That's how powerful he is. And so when we address him, unlike complaining to a friend that is as limited as we are, sometimes as big a mess as we are, when we speak to God, we are speaking to the one whose words melt mountains. That's why we need the Psalms. Because I don't know about you, but my prayers tend to bring God down to my level. Tend to say, God, I can't do anything about it, so now it's time for you to try. But a God who speaks galaxies into existence with a word, to treat him like a personal assistant, when I don't want to get my Starbucks, maybe he will, right? Is to not approach him as he actually is. God of creation. The other thing that the Psalms are at pains to remind us is he is the God of our salvation. That is one of the most repeated phrases. God of my salvation. God of my salvation. God of my salvation. You see, God is a saving and redeeming God. This is the business he's in. Is he takes that mess of reality and contrary to all of our expectations of how it will be done and when it will be done, he makes something of it. Now, now, hear me again. Contrary to how we think he should do it and when he should do it, he does it. And sometimes we only see this in retrospect. Sometimes this only becomes clear years, decades later, that God takes the mess of our lives and weaves it into something beautiful, right? The, the sort of classic image of this is if you've ever flipped over one of those really complex quilts, it's a mess on the back, right? All of these strands going this way and that, you turn it back over and it's a work of art. And there is a sense, and I'm not cheapening. Guys, I've been through some stuff these last two years. And the Psalms have been my companion. And it's not some happy, clappy, and now everything's fine, right? Like, like when you've been through the struggle, you know that this is real, but you do need someone to tell you, no, there is a God who is working. There is a weaver behind this existence and this world. And that weaver works on the level of your individual soul and on the level of human history and nations and civilizations. You see, that's part of the pairing of Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1, very personal and individual. Psalm 2, way cosmic size view. You see, the God of, your, of the, the individual story of your soul is also the God who does things with kings and emperors and civilizations. And he's active. He's active in both. What you are not doing when you approach this God is, is actually what that psalm is saying, which is what we feel, which is, God, rouse yourself. Do something. If we could actually see with spiritual eyes, God would say what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, my Father is working and has always been working and always will continue to work. We need to be reminded of that. I love this from, from one of the great Psalms scholars. He says, this is the James Mays. It's a joy. Yeah, there it is. The time of the Psalms is the interim. The hymns proclaim among the nations, the Lord reigns. That's one of the most repeated phrases also in the Psalms. The prayers of the people of God are based on the confidence that the proclamation is true. The instruction lights the darkness of the present with the assurance that life and experience will ultimately vindicate the proclamation, the Lord reigns. I love that. The God who meets us in the interior drama, drama of the soul, I wrote this, is the same God who acts mightily in history. 
At least I wrote that down. I don't know if I wrote that, but let me not, <laughs> let me not be brought up on charges here. Um, third thing, deals with reality as it is, helps us navigate it as we address God and reminds us who this God is. The third thing is it gives us a vision of where it's all headed. It gives us a vision of where it's all headed. This is where it's fun to have a physical Bible in front of you. Go to the very end of Psalms. There's 150 of them. So find the end. And then just go back to Psalm 146. All right, ready? We're going to turn some pages. I should hear pages turning. First verse in Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Let's keep going. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him. Let everything that has breath, guess what? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's how the Psalms end. And insofar as the Psalms are partially trying to pick up on the story of God, the ending matters a lot. Eugene Peterson, a great pastor um, who rewrote the Psalms, you might famously know that as, as the message version of the Bible. He says that the end of all prayer is praise. Now he's toying with that word end. What he doesn't mean is that every single prayer you pray needs to end as praise. He's saying the end, the, the, the where it's headed, the purpose of it, the ultimate goal of it is it will turn to praise one day. Even laments, keep in mind, uh, like Psalm 44 famously, Psalm 88, they do not end with praise. They end with, where are you, God? And yet the Psalter, the book of the Psalm, ends with, almost obnoxiously so, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. This is where it's headed, it's telling us. I love how, <clears throat> this is one of the concepts that has just stayed with me for years and years. It's something that... Uh, Another great psalm scholar um, who has by far the best name of any psalm scholar is Walter Brueggemann. Um, I think of it as Brueggemann. Um, I can't not think that, and now you will too. He talks about how the psalms carry us, follow me here, right? Like this is a little bit uh, scholarly language and all that, but follow if you can pick up what he's saying, especially if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time. He says that the psalms lead us from the first naivete to the second naivete. Listen to what he says. The first naivete is the pre-critical, before we really analyze anything. It believes everything. Indeed, it believes too much. It is an enjoyment of well-being, but unaware of oppression and incongruity. It is a glad reception of community, but unaware of the hurt that's possible in community. It can afford to be uncritical because everything makes sense. He's talking about this as, this is a lot of times where we start in faith. We start with this sense of like, ah, everything's great. My life is great. The church is perfect. I found the perfect church. These people are amazing, right? Like, everything's fine. It's pre-critical. But growth, here's a dose of reality, and indeed life means moving to criticism. Not criticism in a negative sense. Criticism in terms of actually looking at the world as it is. A new awareness of self in conflict with itself, of others in dishonest interestedness, in other words, other people being selfish, and of God in enmity. At some point, God can feel like your enemy, is what this is saying. What happens then? 
And his whole argument is, this is what the Psalms are for. It meets us in that place where the simplicity, where that naiveness gets challenged, it finds us there and then it walks with us through that. It slows down long enough to walk with us and say, yeah, this is really hard. Yeah, this is really scary. It's really weird that life doesn't make sense. It's really weird that your faith isn't working anymore the way that it once worked. But it gets us to praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Because here's what it does. But the second naivete is post-critical. I'll read it from here. Not pre-critical. The second naivete has been through the pit and is now prepared to hope all things. That's New Testament language. It knows that our experience is demystified as it must be. Right? You've gotten a dose of reality. But it knows that even in a world demystified and reduced, check this out, grace intrudes. And God makes all things new. The ones who give thanks and sing genuinely new songs. Remember that was the last, in one of those last songs, it's all about singing new songs. The ones who sing genuinely new songs must be in a sense naive, right? Like faith after you've been through the worst that life can throw at you to the rest of the world still looks really naive. In fact, maybe more naive. Like, yo, you've been through that? And like you're stronger for it? I can tell you right now, unapologetically, the strongest followers of Jesus in this room have been through some stuff. And if you could get their story in full, you would have a sense of, wait, what? And you still follow Jesus? That's what this is trying to articulate. The ones who give thanks and sing genuinely new songs must be naive or they would not bother to sing songs and to give thanks. But it is a praise in which the anguish of disorientation of what they've been through is not forgotten, removed, or absent. Somehow, The strongest type of faith that the Psalms model for us isn't just pushing through that stuff, isn't speaking over it and making it go away magically, isn't acting like it's not there. It goes through it. It goes through it and it comes out the other side saying, yeah, I've been through some disorientation. I've been through some stuff. And I don't know that I can even explain it to you right now, but I know that there's a God who takes crosses and makes them empty graves. I know that there's a God who takes loss and grief and somehow turns it into a different kind of joy. I know that there's a God who can take the mess of my life and turn it into a story and bring it up into a much bigger story that I never could have imagined I could be living in. There is a God who turns lament into praise. And that, that doesn't take, hear me now, one of the things that are, that one of the biggest revelations I've had coming back to Psalms is, yo, laments are not, are not the recording of prayers in real time. They're like songs that are written over decades. And so don't think that your lament has to turn into a praise by the end of your five minutes of prayer. It could take years, it could take decades, it could take a lifetime. It could take standing in the presence of Jesus with your body finally healed of that thing that attacked it and ultimately puts you in the grave. But believe me, that lament will turn into praise. Do you know how I know that? Because of that. Because the Psalms, this is why this is what came out of Jesus. Because Jesus said, God, I know the rhythm of the Psalms. I know that right now I feel like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I believe that there's a praise on the other side of it. The cross and the resurrection shed new light on the Psalms. Because this second naivete is no longer naive in the same way it once was. Because we have historical bodily evidence that we have a God who can turn death into life, who can turn the worst this world can throw at him and turn it into victory. Amen? Amen. 
We pray the Psalms as people on the other side of the cross. And we pray them with Jesus and we pray them to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're a God who turns lament into praise. And God, there, are, there is lament on the heart of many here. God, one of the, one of the unique um, privileges uh, in, a, in a strange way that I have, Lord, is, is um, just knowing the weight that's carried in this room. And not all of it. I don't even know the half of it probably. But Lord, I know that there's enough. That God, I pray that you would meet some people and lament this morning. And then God, I pray that you would give us faith that as we walk with you, if we stay connected, if we pray these prayers, even through gritted teeth and with clenched fists, God, that our lament will be turned to praise. And God, when we're prone to doubt, that I pray that we would look to the cross and be reminded that what you did, Lord, once and for all reminds us you are the God of creation, but so much more, you are the God of redemption and salvation. Lord, remind us of that truth even as we come to this table this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, at this table, so beautifully, we are reminded of both lament and praise, aren't we? Because think of what these elements represent. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus took bread that was at the table, and he said, this represents my body broken. Broken, like real suffering, real pain. It's a little bit strange to, to eat in remembrance of that. But this is what he told us to do. He said, took wine that was at the table, and he said, this is now my blood poured out, like real blood, not fake blood. Not Hollywood, but real blood that he suffered. And so this is a table in so many ways of lament. And yet it's a table that took on new significance when all of that made possible our salvation, when all of that became his resurrection. And so we also bring praise to this table because forgiveness is available here, like real forgiveness for whatever ways we've messed up this week. And so how we do communion here at Jacob's Well is we come down these two aisles you can take bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. They're labeled. This table here is a gluten-free option. If you need that, you can uh, dip it in there, take it, and then go back to your seat.